Well, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at those four verses, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are blue and white paperback Bibles in the back there. You can go grab one of those, turn to Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And if you have one of those Bibles, the scripture passage is on page 472. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one home. That's our gift to you. Um, we, we'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. All right, we are going to read Matthew five seventeen through 20. As we start to enter into the body of the Sermon on the Mount, we spent our last uh, Sunday in... Uh, last Sunday in the, the sort of end of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, and we are now entering into the body of the sermon. And Jesus is going to give us the sort of thesis statement for the sermon, the sort of uh, summary of the sermon in one uh, digestible big idea. And this is what the idea of the sermon is, according to Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not in iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you anoint the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit that we might be made holy, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of your son, not just externally, not just in our deeds and actions, not just with our speech, but down to the deepest part of who we are in our hearts, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, one of the more popular TV shows of the day is a, a show called The Good Place. Is anyone familiar with The Good Place? A lot of people like The Good Place, starring Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. And it's a story about a woman who finds herself in the afterlife. And she's happy to find out that she's in, as you may have guessed by the show's title, she's in The Good Place. The Good Place. However, she quickly learns that she is there by a huge mistake. And the good place is a place that people end up at depending, uh, based on a, a system of points, basically equating to uh, the good stuff they do far outweighing the bad stuff they do. But unfortunately for Kristen Bell's character, the bad stuff she did far outweighed the good stuff she did. But now, finding herself in the good place and knowing something of the horrors of the bad place, she is determined to stay in the good place. However, she is not a good person. If anyone discovers this, she risks the danger of being uh, excommunicated from this good place. So, in order to stay in the good place, she is determined not just to stay there, but 
She's determined because of that to become a good person. And this is the basic premise of the show. It's fascinating. The basic premise of the show is kind of asking and seeking to answer this, what does it mean to be a good person? That's what every single episode is about. What does it mean to be a good person? Or or to use the Bible's language, what does it mean to be a righteous person? What does it mean to be a righteous person? Now, this is an important question that every single human being, whether consciously or subconsciously, is asking and concerned with. We, we all have a, a basic desire, because of the Imago Dei, to be good, to be righteous. I know that might seem hard to believe for some of us. Given our current cultural context, all you have to do is go on Twitter, and you'll witness a deplorable dumpster fire of unrighteousness abounding in ways that are unimaginable and deeply disturbing. And, you know, postmodern is this sort of dominant voice of the day with relativistic ethics asserting that there's no right or wrong, that, you know, right or wrong are cultural constructs, not definite standards that transcend culture and time. However, another piece of news in the sphere of television reveals that that's not consistently the case, is it? You know, just last year, the TV show Roseanne uh, made a serious comeback. But just a short time later, the show was canceled. It all came crashing down because Roseanne said something racist on, you guessed it, Twitter. And people were rightly and understandably outraged, and therefore the show was canceled. But why were people outraged? Why do we hate racism? Why just a, 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 a couple of months ago when the KKK rally came downtown were, were thousands of people showing up to counter protests? And why were we writing messages to and about the KKK on shop signs around town expressing disapproval and distaste for their ideology and message? Now, the reason I, I, I want to say is, is because we're human beings made in the image of God, and because of that, we're interested in being good. We're interested. We, we are concerned with being righteous. We all have a desire to be good and righteous. We all want to be righteous. Well, this morning, we come to the beginning of the body on the Sermon on the Mount, and this is where Jesus states the, the thesis of the message, and it pertains to his definition and his idea of what it means to be good, to be righteous. What does it mean to be a righteous person? Well, according to Jesus, we find our answer in the scriptures. The scriptures are, are the story of God's purposes and plans coming to pass, and they contain God's purposes, plans, and coming to pass, and, and, and they contain laws and commandments from God, which show us how to live according to his purpose and plans, and and we find God's objective definition of what it means to be righteous and how we live according to righteousness in the scriptures. But he also wants to help us know how to read the scriptures here. He wants us to see that the scriptures are not just calling us to a, a sort of external conformity to superficial moral standards, which we so often reduce the scriptures to, He wants us to see that his law, the the law of God, the commands of God, are matters that address not just our deeds and our actions and not even just our speech, but his law is a matter of the heart. He's calling us 
to a righteousness that goes down deep to the very core of who we are. He's calling us to a righteousness, yes, of deeds and of action and of speech, but not just that. He's calling us to a righteousness that goes down deeper to a righteousness of the heart, a whole person righteousness. So the big idea that we're considering is this. Jesus came to transform us into a people of whole person righteousness. He came to transform us into a people of whole person righteousness. We're going to unpack that as we look at whole Bible fulfillment, whole Bible obedience, and whole person righteousness. Whole Bible fulfillment, whole Bible obedience, and whole person righteousness. First, we see that he came to bring about whole Bible fulfillment. Whole Bible fulfillment. He, he says in verse 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, by law and prophets, you know, Jesus is speaking about what we call the Old Testament, which is the entirety of the scripture that God's people had at the time. The law is shorthand for the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then the prophets is shorthand for just the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures were written by these guys that God's people called the prophets the ones through whom God communicated his divine revelation. And so by law and prophets, Jesus just means the the Old Testament. And he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. We've been closely examining the words of Jesus here for the last 11 Sundays. And his words have been potent and piercing and powerful Additionally, what is also interesting is is not just what Jesus had said so far, but also considering what Jesus has not said thus far in his messianic manifesto, and that is he said nothing about Israel or about the law. And indeed, a charge often leveled toward Jesus in his day and later, a charge leveled against the church and the apostles, was that Christianity was a a departure from God's divine and authoritative revelation given in the Old Testament. And so here, Jesus and Matthew want to emphasize that who Jesus is and what he came to do is in continuity with the story of the Old Testament. He's not setting aside the Old Testament. He's not ignoring the Old Testament. He's not making the Old Testament invalid. The Old Testament is not passing away, he says. That won't happen, Jesus says, until the rebirth of the universe. He's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, he says that he's come to fulfill them. And that's the operative word here, fulfill. He's come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Now, what does that mean? Uh, Because it it might not be readily apparent. You know, thankfully, though, we we have, uh, this is not the first time or the only time we see the word fulfill in Matthew's gospel. It's actually used 16 times in Matthew's gospel. And even in Matthew 1 through 4, before the Sermon on the Mount, it's used six times. This is the seventh time we see this word. And at times, the, the, the New Testament will, tr- will translate this word as fill up, to fill up, to fill something up, like a cup, filling up a, a cup. Or sometimes it's, it's, used, it's translated as the word complete, to complete something. And that's what it means. It means to make full. It means to bring something to its intended completion. You, you have a balloon without air in it, and it's basically worthless. It's not been filled And its intended purpose has not yet come to pass. And so a friend or family member has a birthday this upcoming week, and you go to fill that puppy with air. 
and it's been fulfilled. Its intended purpose has come to pass. Well, that's what Jesus has come to do with the law and the prophets. He's come to bring about their intended purpose, to accomplish the purpose for which they were given. And of course, that just begs the question, then, how does Jesus bring about the completion, the intended purpose of the Old Testament? Anglican pastor and theologian John Stott points out three ways in which this is true of Jesus. He says, first, that Jesus fulfilled the doctrinal teaching of the law and prophets. He fulfilled the doctrinal teaching of the law and prophets. You know, African bishop St. Augustine uh, communicated this very idea once when he said that, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The same ideas, the same teaching, the same doctrine is present in both. When we read the Old Testament scriptures, we see all the same doctrines and beliefs that we see in the New Testament. We see the doctrine of God and man and salvation and forgiveness. Yet it's like looking at these truths through a dark, tinted window. And now that Jesus has come, he's come to make it abundantly clear, crystal clear. He's come to fulfill the doctrinal teaching of the law and the prophets to fully and clearly reveal what was somewhat unclear then. And furthermore, Jesus fulfilled the predictive prophecies of the law and the prophets. And this seems to be one of the more common ways Matthew's gospel uses the word fulfill. Matthew, again and again, will look at the life and teaching and work of Jesus and say, this was to fulfill, to fulfill the, pro, uh, the word from the prophet so-and-so. So you can look at a couple of these, Matthew 1, Matthew looks at the story of the Virgin Mary becoming pregnant with Jesus and quotes Isaiah 14. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. In Matthew 2, Jesus looks at, or Matthew looks at Jesus escaping from Egypt to avoid the infanticide ordered by King Herod. And when Jesus moves to, back to Israel from Egypt, Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1 1 and says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry in Matthew 4.14 in, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, 1-2, and he says, so that, that it was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And of course, it's not just those texts. There's so much foretelling of the person and work of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's the snake crusher in Genesis 3.15 that comes to give us victory over Satan, sin, and death. He's the seed of Abraham through whom God promised to bless all the nations of the earth. He's the son of Judah from whom the scepter of God's rule would never depart. He's the Passover lamb who was sacrificed so that God's wrath would pass over his people and that his people would be spared. He's the prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 who's come to give us the word of the Lord and not just the word of the Lord but to be the word of the Lord fully and freely revealing to us what God is like being the exact imprint of his nature and character as Hebrews 1 says. Jesus is the son of David who will rule on the throne of God's kingdom for all of eternity, throughout the ages of eternity. He is Joshua who truly leads us into the promised land. He is the Ezra and Nehemiah who truly leads us out of the exile of sin and darkness. He is our priest, our temple, our sacrifice. He is the fulfillment of every prediction and prophecy and type and shadow foretold by the law and the prophets. And then thirdly, Jesus fulfilled the ethical demands of the law and prophets. Fulfill the ethical demands of the law and prophets. You look at the law and prophets, 
And there's a great deal of ethical and moral demands laid upon the people of God. And indeed, God gave his people commandments so that they would be faithful representatives of him on the earth. And on the heels of giving his commands in Leviticus 4.15, 19 2, 27, 20-26, 21-8, the Lord says that his people shall be holy for he, because he, the Lord God, is holy. He wants his people to be holy that they might represent him as the one true holy God of the universe. He's calling his people to be like him, to image him, to reflect him as his representatives to a watching world be a kingdom of priests on his behalf for the sake of the world. That's why he gave his commandments in the first place, that his people might faithfully live as his image bearers. Yet as we saw last week, his people failed to keep his commandments. They failed to be his representatives. They failed to be a kingdom of priests. Yet Christ, he did not fail. He kept the law of God because the law of God was written not just on the scrolls that he gave his life to reading and understanding, but because as Hebrews 10.7 says about Jesus, the law of God was written on his heart. Jesus said it was his food and drink to do the will of the Father, i.e. to obey his commandments. And as the obedient servant of God, Jesus went to his death not because he deserved it, Indeed, he was the only one who didn't deserve such a gruesome and horrendous death in bearing the wrath of God, but he went because we did. We deserved it. He went to the cross and died so that our sin might be credited to him while he suffered there and died in an exchange that his righteousness would be credited to our account. And yet there's another sense in which Jesus came to fulfill the ethical demands the law and prophets. He came not only to obey them himself and pay for our sins as the only righteous man, he also came to rise again on the third day and to inaugurate a new era, a new age, an age in which God's new creation would break in and transform the hearts of God's people. An age in which God's people would be filled with the Spirit of Christ so that Christ would not be the only one with God's law written on his heart, but so that God's law would be written on the heart of each and every single believer that's you and that's me. He came to fulfill the ethical demands of the law, not just in himself, but in us. And I think this is actually the the main thrust of what Jesus is getting at here, not just that he came to bring a clearer presentation of the truth of God's word and his doctrinal teachings, and not just that he came to fulfill the predictive prophecies, And not just to obey the law on our behalf, but here, I think the main thrust of what he's saying is that he has come to usher in the new covenant so that God's law would be written on the hearts of God's people. And God promised to do precisely this in the law and the prophets. Look at Jeremiah 31, 33. There the Lord promises to his people, he says, for this is the covenant that I will make With the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. He says much the same in Ezekiel 37, 26 and 27. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
In other words, this whole Bible fulfillment that Christ is bringing is going to produce a people in which there is whole Bible obedience. This is what Jesus is communicating. As it goes on to the next verse, look at verse 19. It says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, what Jesus, this gracious new covenant that God is bringing in Christ Jesus is not, as is so often thought and believed, it's not one in which God's people will be more lax about holiness, more casual about obedience, less serious about righteousness. No, the new covenant that Christ is bringing is forming a people who are serious about God's commands because they have the commands of God, not just written on these pages, but on the flesh of their human hearts, which means that they have a new and supernatural desire to love God and obey his commands, not in an effort to earn his favor. That's already freely and fully given in Christ. Christians are freely and fully accepted in Christ. We don't belong to obey. We, belong, we obey because we belong. And notice, this is, this is far different from the ways of, of legalism and license. You know, legalism says that we must obey in order to belong. License says that we belong so there's no need to obey. And both fail to comprehend Jesus and what he came to do, which is to create a people who love him and who love one another in order to represent him to a watching world. Legalism seeks to obey but fails to love. And license consumes and uses, but also fails to love. Only those who have received the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit into their lives are able to know the depth with which God has loved us in Christ Jesus and are therefore able to respond with love and adoration, which leads to joyful and careful obedience. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, if we love him, we will obey him. This requires careful thought because, you know, a lot of different people approach the commands found in the law and prophets in a lot of different ways. And often what is popularly read and digested and believed by Christians is not biblical, not helpful, not in accordance with what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes you might hear well-known pastors and teachers and theologians say things like, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, I don't need all those laws and commandments and stories. They just compromise our witness in this time and place, and so let's just leave it behind. Jesus says something entirely different here, doesn't he? Now, I remember a while back, some of you have been around since Veritas started. We, we went through, a, uh, you, you may remember this, we, we went through a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And at one point in time, when we were in that series, I was talking with a, a pastor, a friend of mine, about the series, and he started asking me questions about how we were going to talk about the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. And uh, so I told him my, my views on the Sabbath and, and how we are going to approach teaching it and how I thought we ought to obey and apply that commandment on this side of the coming of Jesus. And he basically responded by telling me that there's nothing in the Sabbath command that ought to be carried over to the new covenant and that I was better off not teaching that commandment. 
And so I asked him, I was just curious, how do you teach the other nine if you don't teach that one? So I said, well, how would you preach a, a sermon through the Ten Commandments? And he said, I probably wouldn't. Let me tell you, that's not an uncommon mindset among many, many Christians in the United States. When many come to the Old Testament, they fail to see its relevance and its claim on our lives as Christians. And yet, as the Apostle Paul says, all Scripture lays an authoritative claim on our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It's not just the New Testament or the parts we find more palatable or easier to understand. We must not and cannot, as Christians, set aside or relax the commandments of God or be selective in how we apply them to our lives. Now, on the other hand, we do also need to recognize that while we honor all Scripture and believe that all Scripture lays claim to all our life, we also need to remember and recognize that we don't apply and adhere to all Scripture in the same way on this side of the new covenant. We are situated in a certain administration of the covenant in the life of God's people. So Christ didn't come to abolish the law, he didn't, he didn't come to do something completely new. There's a continuity with the Old Testament scriptures and the New Covenant, yet in coming to fulfill, there's also discontinuity with the Old Testament. And so while we never set the Old Testament aside, we also don't want to compromise the newness of the New Covenant in how we approach the Old Testament and how we apply it to our lives. Because indeed, there are things in the Old Testament that we not only don't have to directly obey today, but things that we ought not directly obey today. One example of this is the sacrificial system. In the Old Testament, God gave his people a great deal of instructions about sacrifices, sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls and birds for certain purposes and for certain days of the year. And in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles in the book of Hebrews make it abundantly clear that we not only don't need to participate in those sacrifices, but that indeed we shouldn't participate in those kinds of sacrifices. There are other things we could talk about in the same way. Why? Because there, those laws were for a certain administration of God's covenant with his people prior to the coming of Christ, and they were given as a means of showing God's people their need for a sacrifice and to point forward to Christ as the once and for all sacrifice on behalf of God's people. They were merely shadows, but Christ is the substance. Therefore, to participate in those sacrifices, those shadows, now would be to say that there's something insufficient and lacking in the sacrifice of Christ, which we know that there's not. He said with his last breath, it is finished. Therefore, no more sacrifices are needed. Our forgiveness, our justification, our salvation, our redemption, our rescue is accomplished in full, and we don't need one more drop of shed blood to make our salvation effectual. Christ has done it, and in doing it, he has done it all. Now, is, is that relaxing those commandments and teaching others to do the same? No. We're simply saying that the way those particular commands were fulfilled by Christ means that they are no longer literally or directly applicable to the people of God, but they are most certainly typologically and allegorically applicable to the people of God. 
However, we also must be abundantly clear that when it comes to the moral commands of the Old Testament, those are still directly binding on the life of the church. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. You shall have no other gods before me. These are, and, and more are most certainly to be taken literally and directly obeyed in the life of the believing community. In fact, Jesus actually goes on to repeat and teach about some of these very commands in the Sermon on the Mount. However, to say that these commands are to be taken literally and directly, to be directly obeyed still in the New Covenant, is not to say that nothing has changed regarding them. Even with the moral commands of the Old Testament, we need to understand how they change for us. In light of the newness of the new covenant, in light of Christ's fulfillment. Again, in the new covenant, these commands are not only written on tablets of stone, but on the flesh of human hearts. And Christ came to do just that. In other words, he came so that we would be a people of whole person righteousness. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 20 when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a shocking statement, isn't it? Especially for those in first century Judea. I mean, at this point in history, we're pretty used to seeing Pharisees as the bad guys, you know. But, but in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they were the heroes. Sally Lloyd-Jones put it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. They were the extra, super-duper holy people. You see, one of the things that Jesus makes abundantly clear in the Sermon on the Mount is that according to his definition of righteousness, his definition of what it means to be good, the Pharisees don't cut the mustard. In fact, in chapter 6, He's going to go on to call the Pharisees over and over again. He's going to call them hypocrites. Yet one of the interesting things, you know, that, that, that you'll notice about Jesus' definition of a hypocrite is that it differs a little from how we usually define it. When we hear or use the word hypocrite, what we typically have in mind is someone who's kind of two-faced. They'll say or do one thing in one setting, but in another they'll say or do something else. And that's a, that is a form of hypocrisy. Yeah. Yet that's not what Jesus means in the Sermon on the Mount. A better definition of hypocrite in the Sermon on the Mount is someone whose actions and deeds are righteous, even consistently so, even in two settings. Yet the thoughts and intentions and motivations of their hearts are off. And Jesus He gives a number of examples of this in chapter 6. He gives the example of someone who gives their money to the poor and needy, a righteous thing to do, absolutely. And yet the reason they do so is in order to just be seen and praised by others. He says the same. People are devoted to praying in public or announcing to the world that they're fasting. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to take it to the Pharisees. He's going to say about them there, it's it's exactly what he's been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And I'll say, I'll go on to say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but are within full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They look righteous and good on the outside, but inside they are corrupt and filthy and unclean. And for that reason, the Pharisee might just be Satan's magnum opus. In chapter 5 here, Jesus will go on to speak much in the same way about observing the law and the commandments of the Old Testament. They had just twisted the law so badly. He says, here he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, because they were just externally applying them and not directing them toward the thoughts and intentions and motivations of their heart, they were relaxing them. But Jesus doesn't relax them. Instead, he teaches them, and he teaches them in the way that they were meant to be taught and lived. Here's a couple of examples from the Ten Commandments. Jesus takes the Sixth Commandment. He says, you shall not murder. Yes, And he teaches, though, that this commandment isn't just to be externally observed, but it has real internal claims and implications for our hearts. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool! be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, to really obey the command to not murder requires also that you you not speak to your neighbor in hateful and unjust ways. And not only does it lay claim to your speech, but if you possess a heart of hatred for your brother, the root of the fruit of murder is already present in your heart, and therefore you cannot be said to be righteous and good according to Jesus' definition. He says much the same about the seventh commandment as well. He says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you you don't commit adultery, that's good. However, the commandment was meant to go far deeper than whether or not you actually do the deed. It lays claim to the thoughts and intentions and motivations of your heart, if you lust after someone, the root of adultery is present within, and you therefore cannot be said to be righteous and good according to Jesus' definition. You see what Jesus is saying here? The greater righteousness, the exceeding righteousness he's calling us to here is a righteousness that goes down deep into the very core of who we are. It's a righteousness of the heart. The way Jesus actually puts it in Matthew 5, 48 is like this. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't misunderstand. You might read that as a Westerner and, and think that Jesus is calling us to sinlessness. 
the Hebrew idea of blamelessness and perfectness is not sinlessness or flawlessness. The word telios in here, and in, in its parallel in the Hebrew, actually means something like completeness, or, or as you may have guessed as the sermon suggests, wholeness. It's not a righteousness wherein every deed and act you do is in accordance with the law and commandments of God. Rather, it's a whole person righteousness that goes down deep to the very core of who you are. It's a righteousness that permeates your entire being, your deeds and your actions and your speech and words and the thoughts and intentions and motivations of your heart. And John Stott perhaps put it best when he says this about the kind of righteousness Jesus is calling us to here. He said, Christian righteousness far surpasses Pharisaic righteousness in kind rather than degree. It is not so much, shall we say, that Christians succeed in keeping some 240 commandments when the best Pharisees may only have scored 230. No, Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. Now, why is Jesus saying all this? Why is he bringing the law of God to bear upon our hearts in such a piercing and potent way? Why would he do this? Why would he say this? You know, my experience, I'd have to say be, be, it's because of our incessant tendency to make religion a matter of checklists and superficial moral conformity rather than actually doing the hard work of looking under the hood at our hearts. We so easily and naturally create little defenses and distractions that keep us from considering the state of our hearts. This is especially true in this current cultural moment, social media, image upkeep, busyness, endless mind-numbing, heart-ignoring forms of entertainment options. So often, we, we, I mean, this present evil age was just set up for us to ignore the thoughts and intentions and motivations of our hearts by distracting us. With social media and entertainment, playing video games, YouTube, putting extra hours in at work or maybe even doing super spiritual things, like serving at church. Or perhaps we use the study of theology as a defense mechanism from really considering our hearts, or, or like the Pharisees, being obsessed and nitpicky about external observation of something good, God's law, or maybe it's, it's not even God's law, but our own self-made standards and laws. Maybe we're creating such things and using them to distract and defend from actually checking our hearts and considering our hearts. We do this. We create little defense mechanisms and distractions so that we don't have to consider our hearts. Maybe you're listening to this right now and specific examples are coming to your mind of how you do this. How you distract and defend. Even after the sermon, you might do precisely that. You might just say, hmm, that was a good sermon, or you might just explain a list of problems that you had with the sermon rather than actually checking your heart. How you distract 
and defend so that you don't have to consider the state and nature of your heart. Maybe you do this because it's just too painful, too alarming, too frightening to really give yourself to this kind of self-examination. And so to you, I'd say two things. Jonathan Pennington says that there's a piece of bad news and a piece of good news about this passage and this teaching about whole person righteousness. First, the bad news. God already sees and cares about your heart. He's not a God who is willing to look past your unrighteousness even if it remains beneath the surface and hidden from the sight of your neighbor. You might be able to fool your coworkers, your friends, your fellow church members. You might even be able to fool your family and make them think that you are a good and righteous person because your deeds and actions and even your speech are good and right and just. And hear me, it's, it's good that you don't murder people or commit adultery. That's good. Like, it... it no doubt, it, murder is worse than being unjustly angry with your neighbor. Lust or adultery is worse than lust. Absolutely. However, God sees the thoughts, intentions, and motivations of your heart, and you're not fooling him. And he's not willing to overlook the unrighteousness and sin therein. He's not a senile old grandfather who winks at sin. He hates it. God already sees and cares about your heart. Here's the good news, though. God already sees and cares about your heart. Think about the one who's teaching us here. Think about the one who's teaching us about whole person righteousness. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God who left the pleasures and perfections of heaven to come down and experience the pain and perils of life on this earth. This is the one who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the one who, for love's sake, had his beard ripped out of his face and his back filleted with a whip and crown of thorns pressed down into his skull. This is the one whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. This is the one who was crucified and killed also that your guilt would be taken away and your sin atoned for also that you would be reconciled to him and freely and fully forgiven forever. Let me tell you, my friends, he's, he's not just interested in taking away our guilt. He's not just interested in giving us pardon from unrighteousness. He's interested in giving us power for righteousness. He's not just interested in giving us pardon from righteousness. He's interested in giving us power for righteousness. He's not just interested in giving us the full remission of sins. He's interested in fully restoring us as God's image bearers by making us into a people of whole person righteousness. A righteousness that doesn't just settle for outward conformity to superficial moral standards, but contends for renovation of the entire person down to the very core of who we are in our hearts. This is when a loved one sins against you. You want to forgive them, but you also want to see them set free from their destructive behavior. 
because you truly desire what's best for them in the same way the Lord wants what's best for you. He wants to and has taken away your guilt, but he wants more. He wants, to, he wants to take away the destructiveness of sin itself in your life. And eventually he will do it in full, but even here and now, he wants to do it progressively and potently in your life. That's why he died for us. And more, that's why he rose for us. And why he sent his spirit into our hearts to fully redeem us, to fully restore us, not just outwardly, but inwardly, to be a people who are careful to obey his commands, to be a people of deeper and whole person righteousness. And that's what we're about to celebrate here at this table. We're going to remember the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. We not only remember, we also commune with the risen Christ receiving nourishment for our hearts to equip us and empower us to live lives of whole person righteousness. Before we do that, let's take a few moments to pray, to silently reflect. Heavenly Father, your word has spoken this morning. I pray that whatever was said that wasn't in accordance with your word, that you would remove that from the minds of your people. But what was true, would you pierce the hearts of your people to bring conviction and comfort, to pluck up and to plant, to break down and build up, to conform us more and more, not to the image of this world, but to the image of your son, the perfect image, the one with your law written upon his heart. So would you help us this morning as we approach this table to commune with this table be to us the communion with the body and blood of Jesus, that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus so that we might make known to the world Jesus for the glory of and fame of the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.